This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Hamish Penman and welcome to our podcast. It's a first for Evil this week, a brand new, not seen before lineup. I'm joined by content editor Andrew Dykes. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. I'm enjoying the Edinburgh Festival and all of its soggy delights. <laughs> soggy delights. I'm not sure they'll be putting that on the poster for next year's event. <laughs> And uh, we're also joined by digital journalist Ryan Duff. Ryan, how are you doing? Oh, I'm not bad. I thought that Soggy Delights was a new like one-woman show or something. I thought that was what you were advertising there. It may well be by the end of the run, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit of a washout already so far, but uh, enjoying it nonetheless. There you go, a good metaphor for the British summer there in general. Um, yeah, well, if last week's uh, news cycle was eventful, then well, this one has been uh, markedly quieter, I think. But even uh, we are even we are not immune to the lulls of summer holidays, as our as our ragtag lineup suggests. But we've still got three stellar stories to pick the bones out of. Um, starting with me, actually, um, in the world of decommissioning, where the North Sea Transition Authority (NSTA) has published its latest cost estimate report for removing, plugging, and retiring the North Sea. So, as it is with everything at the moment, you'll be unsurprised to. Hear that inflation has had a big impact. Um, so since the NSTA rebaselined its target for reducing the cost of decommissioning the North Sea um, back in November, the check for doing so has actually increased by three billion pounds to forty billion pounds. Now, as I mentioned, inflation's obviously played a big part in this, but so too has competition from other sectors. So the likes of offshore wind competing for some of the same vessels and facilities that are used in decommissioning, basic economic dictates that uh, the prices for those things have gone up. So now somebody said to me recently, I mean, isn't it a good thing that the bill has gone up? Does that mean that there is more work to go around? Um, well, no, it's there's still, still the same scale of work, just the cost of doing it has increased and there are implications for the Treasury within that, but we're not going to go into that here because there's a lot of other things to get through and it's touchy ground that usually upsets somebody or the other. So there were a number of positives for the basin though included within the report. The headline takeaway uh, was £21 billion of spend in the decommissioning pipeline up till 2032. So that equates to roughly £2 billion a year for the next decade. The NSTA described it as a massive chance to keep developing skills and experience in the North Sea. That's pretty fundamental given how often we hear that decommissioning will be a big means for workers to transition from oil and gas and, and will sustain jobs um, within the sector as oil and gas winds down. So that's a key part of, of all decommissioning activity. Um, there was also some interesting stats around supply chain action plans um, lodged by operators with the NSTA last year. So of those that were, were put before the regulator, they totaled about two £2.2 billion worth of work. Now, UK suppliers will be used for around 70% of that if these plans are to be believed. So that's about £1.57 billion. So a lot of work coming along the pipeline. It doesn't, I'm not sure when that will come out because obviously it depends when these, these campaigns and projects get going. And we have seen decommissioning historically delayed and pushed back. There seems to be a degree of optimism that that won't be the case this year, um, due in part to the fact that last year was one of the, the best years for decommissioning spend, about £1.6 the best in the last five years, more than in any of the previous five years, sorry. So companies are getting on with shutting down wells, removing infrastructure and, and generally cleaning up, cleaning up the North Sea. So despite that ballooning bill... Um, up to 40 billion now the NSTA is still pretty confident that the industry can hit its targets to cut the cost to 33.3 billion by the end of 2028 from a 37 billion baseline introduced in November um, Pauline Innes the NSTA's director of supply chain and decommissioning did emphasize though that most of the low-hanging fruit has now gone 
so easy cost reductions, cost reduction wins that the industry has been able to make in previous years just aren't really there anymore. They've already been achieved um, and it's now going to have to focus on other things. So efficiency and that's famous words in the industry collaboration to achieve value from here. It's urging operators to kind of build on track record already achieved in decommissioning while also embracing new tech and innovative new commercial models. And that's something that industry has been or regulators and trade bodies have been calling for for a while there's perhaps a perception that industry is a bit conservative with a small c when it comes to decommissioning it likes tried and tested methods whereas perhaps that keeps the door shut on on new innovative ways that could perhaps deliver these these gains in a in more cheaply um and the regulator is also kind of pushing operators to get on with their agreed schedules like i said decommissioning has historically been um perhaps the first to be delayed um when operators are looking to cut costs um, but I suppose there are some good examples of this already happening. We've seen operators using vessels on multiple campaigns, um, kind of utilizing them to their max while they're out in the North Sea to make sure they do as much work as possible. So I think there is, a, to a degree, a kind of keep on doing what's working. Um, but obviously, there will be need to be some some big changes to to hit that that cost reduction target. But yeah, overall, uh, an interesting report. Lots of lots of big stats in it, which is which is what we're here for. I uh, I was struck by that seventy percent figure actually when I read through that. I think obviously that's forward looking, right? That's an, a supply chain pipeline that's coming through in the next few years. But obviously, you know, we we hear whenever big decommissioning contracts go out that <laughs> nine times out of ten, it seems it's a very subjective figure <laughs> that a lot of these uh, this work is going to kind of yards outside the UK and the supply chain kind of usually throws up its hands and kicks up a fuss about it. I think, I mean, two things that kind of jump out at me from working backwards from that. I think a lot of the spend is on Wells, right? Wells is still the most expensive part of that chain. And obviously the UK seems to be winning, or at least UK firms are winning a lot of that Wells upfront kind of P&A work. But then it suggests also that maybe the contract's further down and then the actual dismantling are relatively low margin or that they're just, we just don't, don't have the capacity to deal with it. But yeah, I was, I was struck by, you know, it's a good, it's a good figure, but it's obviously one to kind of point out to people when, uh, when we talk about the UK not winning its fair share. Yeah, I mean, on the Wells point specifically, I think about 50%, roughly, obviously, that will differ of, of the cost of decommissioning assets is wrapped up in the Wells. Now, that's probably forgotten because you don't have the, lovely pictures of the FPSOs being picked apart um, that, that perhaps grab people's attention more. But yeah, a large proportion of the costs are in that. And we've seen companies like Well Safe Solutions, Aberdeen Headquartered, win a lot of work in the last last year, last year and a bit. So that's a big point to, to remember. Also, that 70% figure, I mean, obviously, I, I don't know how hard and fast these supply chain statements are, whether they have to stick to them, there's obviously, I would imagine there'd be a degree of wiggle room. But if it is 70%, that's pretty pretty good, um, especially when you compare it to other sectors, say wind, whatever, but be, the wind sector would bite your hand off for 70% local content, I think. So so perhaps a success story, obviously there will be those who will always want it to be 100, given restrictions around facilities yards in the UK, that's probably just not possible. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that perception that the UK misses out on a lot of decom work is, is, is perhaps slightly wider the mark, but not unsurprising given that you see Van Arven being towed off to Denmark and, and kind of into the sunset, which is the perhaps more tactile pictures. It's, I think it's, you're right. I think it's the visibility of it, right? That's the, that's what people perceive as decommissioning is the, the really visible big thing being taken away and then put somewhere else. And that you, the fewer of those that you see arriving on UK shores, then you perceive that the whole kind of supply chain is inverted. But yeah, as you say, if you take, you know, whatever it's 21 million, 
around 50% of that roughly is probably going to Wells. That leaves you with the 10 billion and then an extra kind of cut for various other services and monitoring and vessels and things around that leaves you kind of with what, like seven-ish billion for actual dismantling and removal of things. So it, it, it strikes me as that I was quite surprised, you know, by <laughs> the, the levels that cut that way. Quick mass on the back of a cigarette packet, that was. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, no, it's a good point. And, and industry, I mean, it, decommissioning trade bodies often make the point, but I think it, others are making it more widely now that decommissioning is one of the few areas in, in the North Sea that is that is growing, that has got kind of a buoyant future to look forward to in, in which it's it's not on a steady decline. So I think that, that makes it makes it quite attractive. Um, just as kind of other asides as well, there was a, a OEUK um, webinar kind of following up on the report, some interesting lines on um, decommissioning technology and how the window to actually deploy that and mature those those bits of kits uh, is rapidly closing if it's going to make any sort of um, difference to, to the UK's decom bill. And also the point on rig rates um, and how that's affecting campaigns. We've obviously seen demand for rigs go through the roof Day rates have followed suit, and and these campaigns are now pretty uh, pretty expensive. So I urge people to go and go and read those, not least because they're mine. Um, but I think we'll uh, we'll decom the decom segment there for a minute, and we'll be going straight to Ryan, who's going to talk to us about licensing. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So licensing, along with CTS, was one of the, the big headlines from last week and last week's pods. Um, it's sparked a lot of debate across the UK. Everyone's got an opinion. Ryan, you've been trying to cut through those and, and really get to the heart of the matter. What have you found? Yeah, I think uh, last week, Alistair spoke about the, the sort of Rishi Sunak reaffirming the hundreds of new licenses that have come to the, the UK. And we spoke about the sort of net zero implications of that last week. So, you know, I, and I think I described net zero as like a, you know, an onion that's multi-layered. And I tried to peel that onion this week. <laughs> We're bringing back the onion talk this week. So, yeah, I, I've been speaking to people about when should we end North Sea licensing for granting, you know, hundreds of new licenses that are just around the corner. Is is there an end date in sight? You know, what what's going on? And, you know, it, it, the more I dug into it, the more it seems like it's uh, the answer is we don't know. Whenever you talk about net zero and granting new licenses, there's always multiple topics that come up, right? You know. Reducing our reliance on Russia is one that uh, Sunak's been bringing up quite a lot. Uh, but if you look into the UK's imports of uh, Russian oil, gas, coal, it is going down and we do import very little compared to what we did before the invasion of Ukraine. And so that's maybe an argument against what, what Sunak's saying is justification for these hundreds of new licenses. However, there's also the, the argument that, well, it increases energy security, 
But then the argument to that is, well, oil goes overseas to refineries, you know? And I think every point I tackled in that in that piece, it seems like there's just an immediate converse. You know, there's an immediate just like, oh, well, actually this, you know, it's like it goes overseas to refineries. But as Alistair eloquently put last week, when oil goes across, to, you know, to Europe for, refi- for refining, it comes back to the UK in other forms. And as a result of that, we've got, you know, it goes out in product A, comes back in product B, you know, like, you look around your house, all you know, majority of the stuff you'll see is probably hydrocarbon based in some capacity. Uh, so getting to the point, because I am going around the houses a little bit, uh, OEUK's HSE and Operations Director Mark Wilson was saying to me that consumers and businesses just won't forgive anyone who shuts down Britain's oil and gas industry, you know, and so that poses a, a tricky political situation because obviously we are going to have to stop producing oil and gas in UK waters eventually. But from this perspective, is it just bleed the bleed the North Sea dry? And then, oh, well, now we're, we're done. And so now we don't have any. So then that's when licensing ends. Or should we be a, bit, a little bit more proactive, investing more in renewables and maybe trying to phase out oil and gas before we've tapped the North Sea? So it's it's an interesting topic that I think I don't I don't think we're going to answer. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think we're going to come up with the solution of oh yes, this is the this is the year that oil and gas is going to stop in the UK. But it is one of these conversations that always sort of rears its head in industry. You know, it's always one of these that we go to these events and there's always someone that says, you know, well when when do we end? You know, and you know as. Hamish pointed out in a piece a couple of weeks ago, uh, Laszlo Varro of Shell was pointing out that even if the UK does decide to cut all production tomorrow, you know, just okay, well, it's it done. We just invest, we'll just import more from the likes of the US and that's more carbon intensive as the NSTA points out, you know, imports are, you know, definitely worse for the environment than domestic production. Uh, but, the, uh, but then, you know, Wood Mackenzie had told us earlier in the year that cutting, uh, you know, the, the labor policy of no new licenses would have minimal impact and would be a bit of a token gesture. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big topic and I feel, uh, I feel like we're, you know, trying to sort of come to some conclusion on it, but it, it, it was a rough one. But, but, what would you guys add to that? You know, it's, do we set an end date or, you know, would industry forgive the, the prime minister who decides to say no new licenses? I mean, nobody's, forg- well, not nobody, but a lot of people still haven't forgiven Margaret Thatcher for closing down the uh, the mine. So I would suggest perhaps not. Um, I, I would be surprised if there is ever a big ceremonial line in the sand end date. Um like, for example, Denmark did. And now Denmark is going back and saying it's actually going to have a mini exploration land. It would seem silly um, while there are still any reserves left to completely rule out extracting them. I mean, because there's going to be, if it's natural gas, there's going to be a need for it perhaps for blue hydrogen. If it's oil, it might be for building roads or whatever. So I would be surprised if there's ever this kind of big, yeah, big end date set. I think what will probably be the, the last nail in the coffin eventually will just simply be geology or geography. Um, we've kind of you can only go after as much as there is, and and there is, I suppose, that's one of the arguments already made by one uh, climate campaigner whose name I won't mention before we end up in the Twitter bio again. Um, but keeps saying, "Oh, there's nothing left in the North Sea anyway, so why have more licenses?" Well, 
if that is the case, then why are you worried? Um, but two, I think there are clearly there clearly is perhaps there's not that much more that is yet to be found. But we'll wait and see. Um, we'll see the, the results of this licensing round. And- I mean, you mentioned geology, Hamish, but you know economics as well, right? These assets are there. Will come a point where they're kind of no longer. It, it doesn't really make sense to add a new bit or a new bridge link platform or reinvest in a in a uh, platform that's been there for forty years because they kind of. The numbers just don't stack up, and the, and the volumes that you're getting out, you know, the North Sea is already a mature basin, and even if you did invest, what do you get out of that at the end of it? Um, you know, I think this this debate is always just a Rorschach test, right? I think that the the, the comments by Aslavar, I think, are interesting in that, like it, it's a decision that you're you can make, and as the the Woodmax stats kind of bear out, the actual the implications on total, you know, net supplies globally or to the uk are kind of negligible so it's very much a political intent thing so if you have a government that is thoroughly fixed genuinely on net zero are they looking to get ahead of the curve and make the kind of decision like denmark does hopefully with a little bit more (laughs) vigor and conviction hamish or is there a kind of not quite kicking the can down the road but keeping all your options open and you know that's when you play the energy security card but all of those are are valid and are backed up with data and everything else but it is this kind of viewpoint thing that's like what what is the most important thing to do and i i do you know i i have truck with people that say it's, it's important that we set the precedent but i also don't think that this government is necessarily prepared to uh to offer the kind of transition opportunities and the support for workers and the support for industry um that is needed to make that transition happen with a yeah turning off the taps policy yeah there's a lot of um a lot, a lot of circles to be squared there and, a lot, and i think a lot of statements as well that are not mutually exclusive, but people see them as so. Yeah, it can be and, not or, which I think, which just kind of gets lost a lot of the time. It, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, we're speaking about what Laszlo Barrow said, and yeah, like what what we're seeing consistently is we are maturing basin. You know, we don't have as much oil as we we demand, or oil and gas that we have as demand. You know, like even if we max out production, we're not going to meet our demand, so we're still going to be a net importer. It's still, you know, it's so it's it's a it's a balancing act, right? That's that that's the that's where I think the debate should be is how do we wean off of oil and gas because it's not going to be there forever, and how do we transition, replace those products, not just in energy, but like I say, in that you know the pen that you're using to write with today or whatever, you know, that's that's got oil, you know, roots. It it comes from the North Sea or whatever, so. How do we wean off of that? How do we wean off our almost dependency on it? Is probably more of the discussion we should be having rather than when I think. No, I think that's a, a fair point, and yeah, a lot of a not lot of analysis got on there. No closer to getting that that golden answer. But if we were, then we we'd all we wouldn't be here. We'd all be millionaires, right? Well, thank you very much for that, Ryan. Some yeah, some in depth analysis and, and a lot to lot to get the head round. We'll park that there for a minute, and we'll be going over to Andy, who has news of another report. The cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes. New sectors, new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the UK and Europe in the upcoming decades. Navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team. Virtus Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. 
Right, so after all that talk of transition and renewables, it's not an industry that doesn't have its own uh, own barriers and hurdles to overcome, uh, a number of which were set out in the Windsor report. Andy, can you talk us through that, please? Yeah, it seems you can't move for reports on the state of the UK grid at the moment, and last week was no exception. Um, so the Windsor report was published last Friday. This is authored by the UK's Electricity Networks Commissioner, Nick Windsor, who was appointed uh, last July as an independent advisor to government. Um, he spent the year since uh, looking at the electricity uh, transmission deployment process. He's been speaking with various stakeholders across the grid and developers as well um, with the goal of how to accelerate the deployment of uh, transmission pylons, all the kind of hard stuff that gets uh, electricity where we need it. Why is that important? Well, we obviously have to get to net zero by 2050. We also have a government target of 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. Uh, very few new transmission lines have been built in the last 30 years. We're, we're very much relying on a 20th century grid to get us to this 21st century energy mix and incredibly quickly. Um, so new lines at the moment have been taking double the time uh, to build, to construct a build, than it takes to build a large wind farm. So one of his warnings in there is that the implications of, of building your you know, new wind faster than the connections to carry it somewhere means that you're looking at incredibly high congestion costs um, when you've got too much or too little wind and moving all the electricity around the, the country to, to where it's needed. And ultimately, you know, you have this these brand new assets, these kind of clean, um, cheap power assets potentially standing idle for years waiting for connections. Um, to highlight the scale of that, there are about 100, uh, 220 projects due to connect to the system by 2026. There's about 40 gigawatts of capacity, according to the system operator. However, only half of those currently have planning permission because of slow consenting, and some have already moved their connection back uh, connection dates back by as many as 14 years. So uh, consenting, grid access, grid build, you know, this has always been highlighted as a stumbling block. Um, in the in the transition, and it's only getting more prominent in the reports that are coming out. We mentioned Tim Pick's report earlier this year. I'm just going to read one passage that kind of highlights the scale of the problem as as Windsor see it. But uh, he says there's no long-term spatial plan to demonstrate the position and the need for a new line within an integrated system. There's no agreed and public guidance as to how, where, and why lines should be placed onshore or offshore, overhead or underground and uh, what the design of the pylon should be, whether we should use the kind of familiar ones or adopt novel designs. There's no agreed and public guidance on how system design should balance the various competing uh, aspects of environmental benefits and costs, and then how to trade off global, national, regional, and local impacts. So uh, he makes 18 findings in the form of recommendations, which I'm going to slowly list for you now. No, I'm not. Um, The main headline that kind of uh, came out of the report was he thinks that this this reform, these series of reforms, um, ultimately can ensure that the time to build these transmission lines can be cut in half from 14 years to seven. I would point out that I think that conveniently gets us bang on to 2030. I don't know if he was doing the the maths with the uh, that goal in mind, but obviously that does get us to 2030. Um, other recommendations that he has include uh, moving some planning duties under the system operator. Also kind of improving the profit models for transmission operators if they can deliver their projects on time and within cost, and just a general streamlining of the approval and consenting process. He takes a quick look at the uh, supply chain as well, and again points out the kind of lack of uh, talent and the lack of uh, skills that we have at the moment in order to, to get us where we need to be. You know, he's saying um, on the supply chain front, we're going to be short of 
cables and HVDC equipment, you know, for years, even decades. And we're going to need many more engineers and technicians than we've got to manage the, the process. So talent is, is still an issue. And he, he asks for a major review of engineering and technician skills uh, as it is. Uh, a bit of uh, reforms to the planning process in England and Wales. I'm going to dwell shortly just on this point for Scotland because I think it's most interesting for our beat. Also calling for reforms to the Electricity Act. So that's the consenting process for electricity infrastructure in Scotland. So while the decisions on actual consents are devolved to Holyrood, the framework which governs the act itself is still reserved to Westminster. So it doesn't give uh, Scottish politicians a lot of authority to act outside of those those frameworks at the moment. It's something he says is outdated. Um, the, the chief sort of issue in that is that he'd like to remove the automatic requirement for a public local inquiry whenever a planning authority objects to an energy-related project. So instead, he's calling for an alternative process whereby Scottish ministers would be allowed to hear more about a specific uh, issue if there's any raised, any kind of objections raised by consultees as an alternative to a public inquiry. Ultimately, it would mean only a Scottish minister could trigger an inquiry and not just any kind of consultation response. That's interesting because it's something I've heard in a lot of projects recently that you know you can get stuck in this endless cycle of, of public consultations where you change something of your plan to you know accommodate the... Uh, the plans go back out to consultation, someone raises another objection and you basically do the whole merry-go-round over and over again and it just adds years to the process and it's not necessarily um, fit for purpose. So I think that's a really interesting um, point to raise. A couple of other things on kind of uh, better demand flexibility and smart investment, uh, adoption of energy storage. Uh, shameless plug, if you want to learn more about energy storage, you just listen to the Megawatt Hour podcast. <laughs> shameless plug over. Um, also, Finally, um, community payments. So obviously when we, we talk about building these new uh, renewables projects, a lot of the time they set up community funds, they set up kind of ways to get the community on side, which we don't really have from a kind of government level. So he suggested lump sum payments for individual households that are going to be close to the, the new lines, presumably for the disruption and the kind of ongoing uh, addition of that in, into their properties. Also that the kind of communities going to, that will be near new lines should get these kind of community funds um, and the, the money there could be governed locally and spent on schemes that they want to do um, basically to get people on side so it, it was wide ranging uh, dry on the uh, on the a lot of reforms to planning processes and things like that but I think really important and I think it's one of these frameworks that underpins a lot of the stuff that we talk about all the time um, I mean you know have you, have you seen consenting grid stuff coming up in your reporting Amish and Ryan? Well, I can't think of grid without thinking of um, the all energy conference that we were at in Glasgow, where it felt like grid was the every other word out of somebody's mouth. So I think it's 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 something that perhaps industry have been aware of for a while, but have been but wasn't at the top of the priority list. It can be very little doubt that it is at the top of the priority list now. Um, and given the kind of scale of the challenge, you can, you can see why because so many projects are are perhaps ready to go or just waiting to to press that investment button, but not until they can get that connection into the grid. So, so yeah, hopefully it's something that we'll, we'll, we will see addressed at, at some point soon. Also on the planning and consenting um, part of that, it's really interesting. I think that's kind of a lot of the same problems as we have with just general infrastructure developments in the UK are, are applicable to wind um, in the projects. I, I as far as I understand it, in other countries, projects have a list of things that they need to tick in order to say, right, that's fine, you can get built. In the UK, it's done far more on a case-by-case -case basis, which means that everyone's kind of guessing as to what they think they're going to need, which is just such a, 
such a barrier to these developments and creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, obviously, there's the the local community aspect to that, but you, you mentioned those those community kind of wealth funds and things that that perhaps have have been used to get people on board, and I think have been successfully deployed across Scotland, especially. So, but you know, a lot to unpick in that report. Um, probably a lot of reasons to be downbeat from it, but um, but but also the fact that these these issues are being flagged early maybe gives people a better chance of cracking them. He he really emphasizes the urgency of all of that, and obviously he's given and kind of given the recommendations on himself that seven year period with which to deliver, which as I say, yeah, conveniently gets us back on target. I suspect we that fifty gigawatt target. We, maybe we will actually build it. You know, maybe it will be there, but I don't know that we're going to have a grid that is fully compliant and capable of taking that. We we've known that grid constraints for wind is going to it was going to be a problem for a while, right? You know, it's something that has been spoken about quite consistently. And the the thing that sort of popped in my mind when you were speaking there was why weren't we talking about this, you know, 2016 around COP, when it's like, oh, we need to scale up, you know, we need to be scaling up our renewables. And okay, well, we can build a load of turbines, we can, you know, we can throw those up, but where does the power go? How does it actually, how does it actually benefit people? I think it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of this is coming from the mindset. So, like, you know, this is this idea that's gone on for 10 years about, oh, well, renewables can't provide baseload and things like that. And it's like, well, you're kind of thinking about it in the wrong way around, right? Like, we're, these these terms are slightly outdated. You know, this isn't a 1950s grid, although it, it actually is. <laughs> it, it, it physically is at the moment, but it shouldn't be. And therefore, you know, the way that our power system works shouldn't be. So I think we're, we've been cobbling together a lot of things. Again, energy storage, you know, we've been filling a lot of gaps and a lot of, you know, and that's great, you know, we've, we've been able to kind of hang on and cobble things together and we're, we're really getting there to high level of renewable penetration on the grid. Getting us to actually, you know, a net, a fully decarbonized grid by I think 2035 or 2030 if you're labor, it's, it's going to take, you know, two or three times the effort that it's taken over the past 15 years to get us here. And that I think we're only just beginning to wake up to. Um, and, and yeah, we're on the back foot already, so like no time like the present. Food for thought for certain, and hopefully food for action as well, because I mean, so far thought can get us. But well, th- thank you very much for that. And a lot to digest and and plenty of plenty of hurdles to be cleared, I'm sure. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Ryan. I've been Hamish Penman, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.